Beyond Radley. Business, careers, and more. Virtual talks by experts from our community. A good afternoon to you all and a very warm welcome to all members of the Radley community and also to any of our school partners who've joined us today on Zoom. My name's Caroline Monaghan and I'm responsible for our new Beyond Radley speaker programme, a series of talks designed to give you an insight into the world of work. This is the third of our talks this week. We've already had speakers on the career pathway into law and working for a global brand. If you're interested in watching any of these videos, they're on our website. Over the coming weeks, we'll continue to bring you a variety of speakers from the Radley Network to help you understand the types of careers available to you and what you need to get into them. We'll also bring in speaker experts who will talk to you about broader concepts like entrepreneurism and the transferable business skills that you'll need to develop to move between jobs and careers in the future. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to old Radleyan Jamie Campbell, acclaimed director and producer, who most recently produced the series Sex Education for Netflix and, rather excitingly, is currently filming the third series. He's going to talk to you about his career in the TV industry, what TV production is like in the current climate, and what to think about if you want to pursue a career in it. I'm going to hand you over to Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Hello, everyone. Uh, and uh, I can see some of you, which is very nice, and I can see some very famous Radley names up there. So um, I can't see all of you at the moment, but it's great to see some extraordinarily some teachers that were some dons that were there in my time. Um, hello, Mr. Horsey. Hello, Mr. Rathbone. I can see you as well. And um, it's lovely of you all just to come along and have a listen while I take you through a little bit of um, what I've been up to since since leaving. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how I'm going to structure this. So um, probably until around half past four, I'll just tell you about a little bit about my time at school. Um, then what I did immediately afterwards, I'll show some clips of, actually I'm going to show a clip of something that I did at Radley, um, just for old time's sake, and um, which still exists amazingly, uh, in Mr. Horsey's archive. Um, then I'm going to show you some clips from early in my career before I set up the company, um, and then a few clips of, um, of shows that we've been doing at 11 since we set, set the company up. Um, do, as Caroline says, there will be some questions at the end, but please just feel free, if you want to interrupt me at any point, send a question through to Caroline and, um, and she, can, she can stop me, and I'm, I'm really happy to take questions at any point. Um, so I went to Radley in 1990. I'd been at a prep school, which I think still exists, called Brockhurst. And uh, I was in A-Social, firstly with um, Peter Johnson, and then latterly with, uh, with Mr. Nye, who I think may just have left Radley, so some of you may know him. Um, and when I was at Radley, I, um, I really loved writing and acting and directing, and, I, and I've, I had done a little bit of that at Brockhurst, but there was very early on just a very sort of clear opportunity to get stuck into all of those things. I think there was something called the Haddon Cup. Does the Haddon Cup still, there are some people, people nodding, yeah. And um, I remember doing a sort of condensed version of Hamlet in my first year uh, in the Haddon Cup, which was great fun, and really just loved the process of devising something um, working out how you're going to perform it, learning the lines, getting together with lots of people and coming up with a production that would then hopefully entertain people. Um, and, you know, it, it, in, on those rare occasions, might even say something about the world as well. And I thought that was just a, a kind of magical process. So I got really involved with theatre when I was at school. I did two or three school plays. Um, in my fifth form, I co-wrote a a play called Circus um, with a very brilliant guy in the year above me called Will Mufti. And, um, and that, was, um, that was about bullying at boarding schools. And we put that on at Radley and then we went to the Edinburgh Festival as well. And, um, and that did quite well at the Edinburgh Festival. And so I got really encouraged by just that, um, the process of devising something, coming up with an idea, putting it on paper and then putting it into production could be a very fulfilling um, process and also that you get quite you get a really interesting reaction from your audience um, and just so I got I got intrigued by that and um, 
there was then a sort of fateful moment where I, my, one of my best friends was called Tom Crowther um, at school and uh, another good friend called Rick Barker, who is the son of an ex-tutor, um, Charlie Barker, who used to be tutor of Age Social. And we came up with an idea which was more of a sort of film script and um, I think it sort of ran to 90 minutes in the, uh, in the early scripts, which was obviously incredibly arrogant and way too long. Um, uh, but we thought this could be fun if we could find a way to, to film this, um, that, uh, that it could be quite rewarding. And we had a fateful meeting with, um, with Mr. Halsey, who I don't think I was ever taught by specifically, but he had this sort of extraordinary goldmine of, of production equipment locked away in this, in, 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 in this, in, uh, I think next to his classroom, there was a sort of annex and all this incredible equipment that me and Rick and Tom, he, he, Mr. Horsey let us um, sort of look at it, experiment with it. And we thought this could be an incredible way for us to make our first movie. And um, there was, I think an early JVC camera, um, which filmed quite high quality at that, at that time. So this was 1993 at this point. Um, and then some great editing equipment as well. And so we went ahead and um, we had our script. We thought, you know, no point in getting other people other than ourselves to act in it. So we were in it as well. Um, we filmed it ourselves, edited it ourselves, and then we showed it a couple of times at Radley. And I thought it might be just quite nice to um, <laughs> to show you a minute from that. You may recognize uh, the location. And uh, the, the main person in this clip is my, as I said, my friend, Tom Crowther. And then at the end of the clip, you will see a much younger version of, of me. I hope this doesn't scare people too much. Um, the, the title of this film was Genesis 96. Covered passage hasn't changed that much. Um, so that was, uh, that, that we made that in 1993. Um, we had a lot of fun doing that. And we actually made a couple of other films while we were still at Radley. Um, again, using the amazing equipment that, that um, Max was able to, um, to lend to us. So I really sort of got the bug for both acting and directing and producing whilst I was at school. And um, I decided to do English at university with the, with the ambition, I suppose, of becoming a director. Um, and I went to Durham, was there for three years, was very involved with the theatre there, um, around the Durham Review, which is a sort of sketch comedy group at that university. And when I came out of, uh, of Durham, I decided to go to film school. And there, there are a couple of really great film schools in the UK, one of which is the National Film School, um, and then there's there's another one called the London Film School, which is the one that I went to uh, in Covent Garden. And it's a three-year course, and it introduces you to basically all aspects of filmmaking, including editing and directing and producing and um, uh, set design, um, script writing. So it's, it's a sort of generalist course, which was exactly what I wanted. And I had a really lucky break after the first year of being there, which was then, so that's coming into 2001. Um, because an idea that I developed with a friend of mine from university, um, we had decided to go and to film it uh, on a sort of shoestring in New York with um, quite a small uh, video camera that we had bought from Dixon's, um, which I think is no longer in existence as, a, as an electrical store. So sorry for that, that sort of archaic reference. 
But um, we we bought uh, I think a 150 pound digital camera from from Dixon's, probably a worse camera than the one that we were using with uh, with Mr. Horsey or Adley. Um, and we went off to New York and filmed this thing that we thought was going to be a sort of 90 minute uh, comedy feature film. We'd scripted it ourselves. We were in it ourselves um, and we edited it ourselves and did, did all the different roles in it ourselves. And we sent it to someone that knew someone at Channel 4. And um, amazingly, we got a reply from that person who'd watched it and said, well, this is not either a comedy or a feature film, but um, but it could be a half hour documentary if you go and film the sort of second half of it. So they gave us enough money to go back to New York to film it. And then we were very, very lucky because it was the first thing that we did and it was broadcast on Channel 4 as a documentary um, in the year 2001. And I'm very, very aware that that is a year before many of the people on this um, on this call were, were actually born. Um, but it was, a, it was a time in sort of documentary making in this country, which was very exciting because there was a lot of authored uh, doc feature documentaries being made and you could still get stuff commissioned in all of the main channels where you could basically experiment or you could come up with a very strong thesis for a documentary and you could make a sing single film exploring that idea. So we made, in those early days, we made films um, about trying to track down Osama bin Laden um, when the FBI was offering $27 million for his arrest. We thought, you know, we'd try and find information that could lead to his arrest. And we did a sort of satirical um, hour-long piece for Channel 4 uh, focusing on that, did an hour-long show for BBC Two, um, focusing on someone called Martha Stewart, who was a sort of domestic diva in the States, who had been um, sent to prison for insider trading, and I lived opposite her jail for the uh, the entire duration of her sentence, trying to understand why Americans love Martha Stewart so much. Um, and then, uh, in a, I think it was two thousand and five, we we basically developed a sort of style of filmmaking which grew out of the fact that we wanted to do all the different roles on the on the films ourselves, me and Joel, my partner. Um, and so it was a sort of quite rough and ready style of filmmaking, but one that really, we really enjoyed and suited us. Um, and we were able, as we developed, to get access to sort of higher profile people and ideas. Um, and in 2005, we made... Um, a film which wasn't commissioned at first. We just went out and made it on our own. We thought it was a good idea. There was this guy called um, David Cameron and um, people were saying that he might become leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, he'd done, I think, one speech at a Conservative Party conference that people had really admired because he'd done it without any notes. And you know, he got a standing ovation for, for doing a speech without notes and people were falling in love with him. And we thought, well, before um, any of the kind of major news networks start covering him, if we started filming now, because we, we were very agile, we could just pick up a camera and go and do things. If we start filming him now for two or three weeks before the um, Conservative Party leadership election, maybe we could get access to him. So we did. We filmed him for four weeks and he didn't have any security around him. So we could just um, I could approach him wherever he was and just ask him silly questions, really. And um and we had a mole inside conservative, um, the, the Conservative Party central office. With, so we could get his itinerary wherever he was going and we would just pop up and, and ask him questions. So I'll show you a, um, just a minute's worth of uh, a clip from, from that so you get the idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, the, the picture quality is not great on this, I'm afraid. It's not, it's not very high resolution, but we will go with it. Uh, but it's a very new experience doing that podium thing. It's quite incredibly exhausting on a moment. Um, quite thirsty. Yeah. Congratulations. Dave tried hard to associate himself with winners, choosing to visit Manchester United, and taking a trip round the Oval, where, to my delight, he revealed a genuine enthusiasm for cricket. Are you a batsman or a bowler, Dave? A bit of an all-rounder, actually, but not very good at either. I played for my village for a while. Um, did you, you ever play for, play for Eton? And uh, no, I was in the fourth eleven. Right. That is not um, a great distinction, I have to say. Well, it's not bad. Um, well, it's better than. But no, it's good. The trouble with cricket is it takes all day. That's. I mean, I love yeah. it. It's wonderful to watch. But if it's, it's worse it's, than golf, isn't it? it is. It yeah. is. Uh, well, it's much more fun than golf. <laughs> Dave was obviously an enthusiastic cricketer, but enthusiasm wasn't everything, and I wasn't sure that I could vote for a man who played for the fourth eleven. 
Nonetheless, Dave was being surprisingly friendly to me and to everyone else. To discover what Dave's secret might be. Uh, so then we, yeah, we went on to discover what Dave's secret was. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we did a lot of those sorts of documentaries, which were very down and dirty. Um, we did all the roles and they, they had a little bit of success. And what we, what we discovered, this is um, me and my partner, Joel, was that because um, we tended to work with other production companies, and kind of offer our, we'd come up with our ideas, offer our services to those production companies and then essentially make the programs ourselves in, in, in the program's entirety. We realized that it might be smarter for us to set up our own company um, and to work with other people who are making documentaries, try and monetize what we were doing a little bit more shrewdly. Um, and so we set up Eleven in 2006, um, shortly after that Cameron documentary. And um, yeah, so our, our, our idea was to, to work with other documentary makers, but also to try and do what we had always aspired to do, which was to start making scripted programs to make dramas and comedies. And um, we weren't exactly sure about how to go about that at first, but we felt that if we pushed on enough doors and um, came up with some good ideas that we might be able to, uh, to, to make that happen. And um, there was a moment in 2008 where we were making quite a lot of documentaries and Channel 4 were offering a pot of money for a series focusing on disabled people. And um, we pitched for that idea, but we said that we would take the budget for the documentary, but that we would make a six-part drama series instead. And uh, which was quite a sort of bold thing to say because the, the budgets for the documentaries were £100,000 an hour. Um, and £100,000 for an hour of drama is very, very cheap indeed, almost to the extent of being illegal, because it's, it's almost impossible to pay people at the correct rates um, at that level if you're trying to make a, a professional drama. But we said that we would, we would try and do that to Channel 4, and they bought into that idea. We, um, we attached a up-and-coming writer um, who we thought was really good um, and has turned out to be very, very good. He's... Um, he wrote the, uh, the Harry Potter play that many of you may have seen. Uh, he's the writer of the, the TV version of his Dark Materials. He's called Jack Thorne. He's won seven or eight BAFTAs now. Um, so we were very lucky to choose him. He wrote an amazing set of scripts for us. And we ended up making a six-part drama series called Cast Offs for Channel 4 um, in 2009 that did very well for us reputationally. And it enabled us to develop many more scripted ideas and at that point there were just three of us in the company and we would basically just throw around ideas you know trying to work out what might be exciting for the commissioners to broadcast or to commission from us um, one thing that we focused on initially was true stories done as as dramas because we'd come from a documentary background so we had that as a sort of usp and we came across a story, this is now in 2013, we came across a story that we thought was um, potentially quite exciting as a drama. Um, and it turned out to be our most successful show up until that point. It was broadcast on Sky and it was their highest rated, um, it was the highest rated original drama that they'd ever done at that point. Um, and it was based on the true story of a poltergeist incident that had happened in the late 70s in Enfield in North London um, and what was really quite fascinating about it was that all of the people that were involved in the incident it was a, there was a family a single mum and four kids and then probably um, 20 or so people that had come into the house over the course of two years where things were moving around and odd things were happening um, and the girl was speaking in a, in a sort of very weird old man's voice on various occasions and giving weird insights into what had happened in the house sort of 30 or 40 years ago where the previous occupant of the house had died how they died it's very very spooky stuff what was fascinating about it was that everyone that was involved um with that with that incident didn't change their story over the course of the subsequent 30 or so years everyone stuck to their story and, and still, you know, even till today, all the people that are still alive still say that what happened in that house happened. So we thought this was really um, quite an interesting case. 
and particularly interesting to do as drama because you could obviously dramatize elements of it that they they they, they said that they had seen. Um, so there was a challenge that Sky put to us. They really loved this idea, um, but they said we we will green light this, but you've got to get an actor that um, is well known to our audience. So we then came up with a list. We worked with the casting director. And then there was a brilliant actor called um, Timothy Spall, who um, older uh, older members of this audience will know from things like Afwida's own pet, younger members of the audience will know from Harry Potter. Um, and Tim met with us, really loved the idea, was very sort of connected with the idea of the supernatural and the idea of depicting something in a kind of respectful way about a poltergeist. And so he joined the team. Um, and then we we um, we had that green lit and we made it into a show that was nominated for a couple of BAFTAs uh, in 2014. Uh, and it was called The Enfield Haunting. And I will play a quick clip from it from it now. This is your kill you. Tim Spall, who turns out to be the investigator, who comes to investigate what's happening in the uh, in the house. Watch me! Watch! Oh, oh dear, dear! Oh, oh. praise God! Oh, that was a bit of a nasty shock, wasn't it? Eh? It hurts. Well, let's have a look, shall we? Am I bleeding? Oh, very scary. Um, so, um, moving on from that, we um, we then made a sh a couple of other shows for for Channel Four and the BBC, and then I'll um, I'll talk a little bit about Sex Education, which we pitched uh, as an idea in two thousand and fourteen, two thousand and fifteen, and we pitched it to Channel Four. Um, and we'd come up with an idea which we thought was interesting and sort of reflective in a way of a lot of the stuff that we tried to develop at Eleven, which is to say something a little bit about the world that provokes you or challenges your perception of the way that the world works. And um, we had this idea of taking a high school setting but subverting the cliches that you might usually see in uh, movies or TV shows about, about high school. Um, so that each of the characters had a little more depth and subverted your expectation a little bit more of what, how they would behave. We liked that idea and thought it was quite, quite exciting. Um, and then we thought there was also a sort of creative way into that idea, which was to look back at some of those amazing John Hughes movies from the 1980s and to bring a sort of um, quite an aspirational sensibility to the idea so that it's it, it, the school felt like the kind of place that you'd want to that you'd want to belong to rather than the, the, the sort of place where I think a lot of people have a memory of school as somewhere there where they wouldn't necessarily want to spend all of their lives and want to get away from. And we wanted to create a world which people would sort of look at and think, wow, I'd actually quite like to be there myself. Um, so we pitched this as an idea with an emerging writer called Laurie Nunn and we pitched it to Channel 4 who commissioned a script. Just to give you a sort of sense of, um, you know, how long the process of getting a drama can, can often be. Um, so we pitched that in 2014 for Channel 4, as I say. Um, Laurie then wrote a script, um, which took about six months. We then gave notes, Channel 4 gave notes. That notes process took about six months. Laurie did another couple of drafts. We thought it was in quite good shape, uh, as did the commissioner. Unfortunately, then the commissioner left Channel 4. Um, and so we thought, oh, no. So we then took it to some of the other commissioners at Channel 4. Uh, who also said that they didn't like it, and um, uh, <laughs> which obviously is um, is quite uh, amusing now. Um, so we then took it to 
the BBC, um, who we took it, I took it to the BBC two or three times to different commissioners, and they and they turned it down for various reasons. Um, which is not necessarily to be disparaging about any of these commissioners. You, as a commissioner, you have your quite set sort of parameters that you're looking to commission into, and it's not always um, clear what's going to work and what isn't. But anyway, I probably over the course of the next year and a half, took the idea to um, 20 to 25 broadcasters around the world, in Europe, um, in Australia, New Zealand, in the US. Um, and it was turned down by everyone except for MTV, who offered up um, a, about the same amount of money per episode as we made cast-offs uh, for. It was about $150,000 an episode, and we just obviously couldn't make it for that amount. Um, and uh, Netflix turned it down as well. Um, and then a new commissioner arrived at Netflix, who I got on with very well, um, and we had a good relationship with. And although it's a little, it's not particularly good form to take an idea back in to a broadcaster, uh, particularly Netflix, um, twice, uh, I thought that she would respond to it well. So sent her the script. She really, really liked it. And they moved very, very quickly to, to greenlight it. Um, and that was in 2000, early 2018, I think 2017, 2018. So the process of um, setting it up took probably four years. And that's, uh, yeah, almost quite a quick process on the, on the quick side. Um, I don't know if anyone has um, seen the show, but I'll just play a little clip from um, season one, episode two, from that balmy summer from uh, a couple of years ago. My gosh, I bet you they have loads of toilets. It's a bit quiet, isn't it? It doesn't start till 8.30. Oh, it's only 8.15. One time is late. What does that even mean? Late is late, early is early, and we are very early. Uh, what are you doing? Bringing the buzzer. No, you're not. We're going to wait until other people get here. <laughs> Eric, that's being very silly. Antis, I just told you not to bring that doorbell. I don't know what's what. You look like you pooed yourself. You will die! Eric. <laughs> Why did you win my trousers and let me What's wrong with you? You'll die by fire in the force because I'm sick of it. I'm sick of this behavior, man. Hey, mate. You look fierce. You don't like a what's it? Nice hat. Hey, I think we're going to have to go home because he's ruined his trousers. Looks like he's done a poo. It's fine. We're going to the party. Yeah? Uh, uh, it's a bit early, isn't it? We're here for business. Okay. How come she can ring it? Well, she's not you, is she? Here goes. Uh, so that was season one. Um, we're, we're now filming season three, and um, as you can imagine, that we're, I think we are, uh, how many weeks in? We're about 20 weeks into our shoot. Uh, we've got five more to go. It's been an incredible sort of challenge to get a production up and running in these times where, particularly with lots of scenes which um, involve people coming quite close together, as you can imagine. And um, so we've got a COVID laboratory on our campus um, with a COVID team and a, quite a big COVID budget. Uh, everyone gets tested, all the crew and the cast and the people involved with the show get tested two or three times a week. Um, and that enable, enables us to, to keep going. We've been incredibly lucky so far. We've had only a couple of days in that 20 weeks where we've had to stand down the crew. Um, but otherwise we've been able to film all the way through and uh, yeah, and that um, season three will go out later this year. Um, and uh, I'll just mention as well that uh, just from the, from the point of view, of, in case anyone's interested about the sort of growth of a company or setting up a company and the development of it, in, um, in this industry, it's very, uh, if you're trying to grow a TV production company and then possibly to sell it, the sort of volatility of the industry is such that if you if you do get an opportunity to to find a buyer and to and to do a deal, 
it's definitely worth sort of taking that with both hands. And we found that um, they're probably in our kind of life cycle as a company being two or three opportunities to find a buyer and to sell a bit of the business. And, um, and often things can go wrong to prevent the process going ahead. And we've had two occasions where that's um, start, the process of trying to sell a bit of the company has started and then uh, we had to pull back on it. We've been really lucky with sex education that actually things have moved in the right direction. And we did a deal um, which in itself was, felt like it was gonna fall over because we came to terms with Sony in um, just before March last year. And I don't know if anyone remembers, but uh, in March last year, something quite significant happened that was negative. Um, and uh, so when um, so when COVID emerged, I thought that the, the deal was almost certainly gonna fall over um, or at least be significantly delayed. But Sony were really enthusiastic to um, to buy to buy the company and they uh, held good on the on the main deal. So yeah, we um, we sold 60% of the company to Sony last August. And um, it's been a really exciting time in that sort of new phase of the company. Uh, I'm just very aware it's now 35 past. Um, and so Caroline, shall I hand back to you? Thank you. No, that was that was an absolutely fascinating journey through your career, Jamie. So thanks for that. We've got um, some questions that have been sent in um, prior to the event, which I'm going to direct to you. And then um, hopefully some questions will come through on the chat as well. So I'm going to start um, with this question. How does a producer choose the directors for the series? Do people put themselves forward for consideration or do they just pick directors who they are already familiar with? Uh, that's a good question. It's, it's a little bit of both. Um, and there is quite a, um, as, as a producer, there's quite a, um, a pull towards picking directors or in fact any head of department that might be quite experienced because producing a show is a bit like commissioning a show, um, which is every time that you, you try and do something, put something on, it's quite a big risk and you want to try and de-risk it by your, your inclination on the whole is to try and de-risk it by bringing people that are as experienced as possible. So on the one hand, there's a sort of, as I said, inclination to choose people that you already know or who are very experienced um, and to try and meet those people and try and bring them onto the show. On the other hand, it is, it, it's been something that we as a company have always been very engaged with and keen on, which is to find people who are very inexperienced, but very talented. Um, and and see what happens if you give them a platform to to do to do um, good work, and so we're always on the lookout for newer directors too. Um, and particularly on the subject of directors, the, uh, my my feeling is that you can often tell whether a director, someone who says that they're a director, really wants to direct or not by by whether they've sort of got on with it themselves a little bit before before you're speaking to them. And you can see um, almost all successful directors have sort of, you know, made stuff in their bedroom or they've, um, you know, they've borrowed or stolen equipment in order to just make a short film. Um, or nothing basically will stop them from getting a camera, telling people to go in front of it and then shooting them doing that. And the results may not be pretty at first, um, as evidenced by what I showed you uh, earlier in this talk. But... Um, but it's sort of that's that's what you're looking for. So the answer is it's a bit of a combination of both. You're looking for the inexperienced gold that you can support and nurture and help through through the early part of their career, and then yeah, it's it's also good to um, to find those brilliant ex more experienced people. Sex Education is quite a good example of that. For each of the three seasons, we've had a very experienced comedy drama director called Ben Taylor, who came off a show called Catastrophe. Uh, where he directed every episode of all of the series, uh, the first three series. Um, so he was very, very experienced and very envisioned about how he wanted to shoot the show. He always directs the first half of each show, uh, of each series. And then for the other, for the remaining four episodes, we always look for less experienced directors who might have something really exciting to bring to it. It's, I'll just mention one of those, this, the second block director from season one was someone called Kate Heron who had only done a couple of shorts um, and she'd done a 20 minute short comedy for Sky. So she, you know, had, had barely done anything. She did the second block of um, Sex Education Series One and she immediately off the back of that went on to uh, direct the Marvel 
TV series uh, with Tom Hiddleston uh, called Loki. Um, and they're just rapping on that in LA. It sort of goes to show you that, that potentially if you do, even if you're very, very inexperienced like she was, if you come onto a show and, uh, and do well, you can suddenly find yourself catapulted into the stratosphere. Thank you. Um, just back to you, a question here from Mr. Pullen, and actually an uh, added question for me. Why did, why did you choose directing over acting is, the, uh, is the, the first one? And me, I see that you have a little bit of a penchant for horror films in some of the footage that you put up there. Was that a genre that you particularly enjoyed? Well, I'll answer that one first. No, it's not that. It's more sort of, well, I do love the horror genre, but there is there is a, um, a sort of noble tradition of <clears throat> people making horror on, on a low budget. That, that's the first thing. And so it's something that you can do and you can use camera effects and I wouldn't call them tricks necessarily, but sort of camera techniques to produce quite sort of high level effects in the horror genre. So that clip that I showed you in Covered Passage is by no means a masterpiece, but if if you look, if you analyze the sort of um, the different shots that we did there, you've got a sort of, you've got a few single shots, um, which are static shots of Tom walking past the camera and and then you've got a a dolly shot where he's running down the corridor. Um, Then you've got a a, a moving shot where you're uh, panning from him looking down the corridor where there's nothing to looking behind him, then coming back and finding me standing in front of him. And there, so you're able to flex your muscles a little bit there um, and create something that has quite a disproportionate effect to the amount of effort that you're putting into it. Um, it's also true um, that the horror genre in general on TV is quite low rent. And so with the Enfield Haunting, part of our sales pitch for that was that we were going to, if you like, raise the rent um, and do something that was of a sort of cinematic quality that you wouldn't necessarily expect of, of horror. Um, and Sky bought into that idea. So that was that was partly what connected that. But um, but having done those, yeah, we it actually the, the sort of the genre of true stories told um, uh, as scripted horror, I think is quite interesting because it raises really quite fun questions for the audience about whether something has happened um, or not and whether it's real. And so the screenings of, of the Enfield Haunting that I went to, I was always interested that people quite quickly sort of get out their phone and sort of look up on Wikipedia whether the things that we're saying happened actually did happen. And so, yeah. Thank you. And why did you choose directing over acting was, uh, was the yeah, other question. Yeah. Um, for a while, I continued... Um, acting a little bit after I started directing and then latterly when I'd started producing. Um, but the truth was m- both Joel, who I, as I said, I worked with um, and myself, liked doing all of those things. We liked acting and, and producing and directing and editing and shooting it and coming up with the idea and um, just <laughs> it's very sort of um, egotistical. But at a certain point, you realise that unless you're going to turn out to be um, someone who is able to be in everything that they're in as an actor or producer or director, um, it's, it's, it's a bit self-defeating to try and do all of those roles at the same time. Um, certainly I found that and I realised that I wanted to try and focus down on the things that I like doing most. Initially that was directing and producing. And then um, for me, I realised that because even as a director, usually you're coming onto a process quite late a director will tend to come on. So like Kate Heron, who I mentioned on, on season one of Sex Education, she's she's coming onto the show at the point where pretty much all the scripts are written. Many of the people are already in place. The idea is pretty much defined. She'll come on and she'll put her mark onto it, but, but ultimately she's coming on quite late. I like the idea of sort of being, I've always liked the idea of being in at the sort of idea stage and then actually shaping the idea and um, and seeing what comes of it when you poke it in different ways and and uh, and discussing it with people, challenging each other about what's good about it, what doesn't work, what does. Um, and then I like being there all the way till the end and, um, and having that sort of experience of knowing all the details, knowing where the dead bodies are and, um, and, and facing all the sort of challenges from the beginning to the end. It's quite a, um, it's a, it's a, 
it's quite a cathartic process when you get to the end and it's and it's very satisfying basically being going all the way through which is only really possible if you're a director coming on right at the beginning which is quite unusual or if you're the producer so eventually i decided that i wanted to focus mostly on on producing a question here from ralph what was the motivation to the timeless and placeless nature of sex education oh good question um well it came out of that thing that i mentioned earlier um about john hughes um i don't know if you've seen any john hughes movies but i'd, I'd really recommend them from from the 1980s really sort of um funny and kind of um you know revelatory about life quite light life affirming and the other thing was about john hughes you know the you, you're sort of it's all it's it's not doesn't take itself too seriously um and you can laugh out loud at john hughes movies it's very open-hearted um, and we like that and so when we got into the conversation about um bringing some of john hughes into our series we talked about the look of it um being more towards the sort of american high school look than towards uk secondary school look um and and we did that for a couple of reasons but mostly it was just about the the feeling that we wanted to create a show that was aspirational by that i mean a lot of um uk high school comedies in film and tv not that this is a negative thing but they they sort of revel in their characters um not getting what they want um and facing an obstacle and tripping over it and then breaking their leg um us us dramas and comedies on the whole have a different tone to them which is the characters face obstacles continuously but you sort of get the feeling that they're going to overcome in the end um and that's that that that's a question both of the way the scripts are written it's a question of um the way that you light the show um it's a quest it, 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 and and then it also comes down to costumes and locations and um the design of the show um and and, and we wanted to present a world which was uplifting and sunny and part of that to answer your question um was about going back to a time in the past which was a little unspecified but the thing for me was that it was pre 2001 because I I I I had a strong feeling that after 2001 specifically after 9/11 comedy became a little different um and you see around 2001 there are shows like the office that start to emerge where you can find them funny as an audience but you tend not to laugh out loud you sort of they're very self aware um and they they're also quite caustic um and and they they don't like poking fun at themselves and we wanted to do something a little different which was to find a way of um yeah almost the opposite of that and i felt that by going back before 2001 somewhere probably towards the 90s and 80s that you get a different feeling you achieve a different feeling but that's it, it's it's quite a sort of um it really shouldn't work and and i think there are there are some uh uk critics particularly uk because outside the uk no one really cares about it but that that would say it doesn't it doesn't work in that sense because it doesn't look like an english or a british high school that wasn't really the point that we were trying to get to we were trying to just create a sort of environment that was a little timeless and a bit placeless as well thank you uh quite challenging question here from ned did you ever have to hold down multiple jobs to subsidize an income because your career path you when the way you described it it was very natural and it seemed to flow but i'm sure there were some highs and lows in there so many new points where uh, you you had to hold down multiple jobs i'm really glad that you asked that because yes that is definitely true and it's also true that um i just just go back a little bit to when i'm at film school in 2000 um so film school was actually quite expensive and i would finish film school each night and i i joined a tutoring agency when i when i left university and the first job that i was offered was with an american family based in knightsbridge who had a young um son called charlie who at that point was 8 and they said look this is um this is quite a big 
we're, we're going to ask for quite a big commitment here. We want you to come every night after you finish film school and we want you to, to teach Charlie or help with his homework um, basically for two to three hours every night indefinitely. And um, so I decided to take the job and um, I did do that job for five years. Um, I eventually moved into their, they had another house um, opposite the one that they had and I moved into their other house. Um, I very much recommend that, by the way, if anyone's. So that, that was, um, yeah, that, I, I did that job for a long time that, to subsidize film school and then in the early sort of years of documentary making, which is not a particularly lucrative profession. Um, and then when we were setting up the company, it was always true that we had to find other income in order to survive as a company. The way that we did that was to start directing adverts, um, which we started before we set up the company in 2006, but really up until 2000 and even up until 2015, um, which was when we did a, a, a smaller deal with Channel 4 to give us a bit of an overhead, we were, we were directing adverts principally to stay afloat as a company. Um, so the answer to that is very much yes. That was, I think, unless you, unless you get some sort of um, investment from a much bigger company, as a, as a small independent drama or factual TV company, you, you, you need some other source of income, unless you're very, very lucky. Thank you. Thank you for your candor. I'm sure that prepared you for homeschooling during COVID quite well as well. <laughs> a question from Henry. What would you look for in employing a young person in your company right now? Uh, uh, that's different things um, because it depends which role. Um, so as a company, we're made up of a number of different departments. One is the script department, which is the biggest department. So we have um, story producers, story executives. Um, we have a head of development. Um, and so that's quite a big sort of development. It's quite a big area that we work in, almost the most important thing. Um, developing ideas once we've got an idea matched up with a writer developing it with the writer that process can go on as i've said before for you know years um and so it's it's a sort of engine room of the company so uh from that point of view if you're looking to come in in a creative role like script uh then we're, we're always looking for people in fact we've got a scheme called duly noted um which we've just set up for people that are less experience coming into the industry, particularly people of colour coming into the industry, to try and um, equip them for for what is quite daunting because it's difficult to know how to enter the industry. Um, so, but in terms of script, we look for people that are very good at analysing uh, scripts, can tell a good script from a bad script, can do good notes on the script, can do good research and have a good, um, can, can, can be good diplomats with writers because diplomacy is quite a big element of the job. Um, and then we, we occasionally have uh, work experience for uh, people that are very fresh to the industry, but it's always, it's so competitive that the answer to that question is a bit intangible, but you have to be able to demonstrate why you're gonna be um, totally, totally committed to to the job and to the company and to the industry that they're they're sort of i hope this doesn't sound sort of depressing but more inspiring but they're because it's so competitive there's no room to come into the industry unless you're absolutely committed and can show can demonstrate that enthusiasm and to some extent to demonstrate that commitment of being a sort of self-starter before you've even applied to the companies does that does that make any sense i know it's a bit vague no, that's no, that's um, makes a lot of sense. And following on from that, have you got any tips for getting a script noticed by a production company? Yes, I've got a, 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 the key thing that you have to do to get the, to get your script noticed by any production company um, is for it to be. I know this will sound simplistic and trite, but for it to be really, really good. And the the reason for that is that most scripts are not very good. The, the great majority of scripts are not very good, probably 95%. Probably about 4% are 
technically um, proficient but aren't inspired. And then there's probably 1%, maybe less than 1%, which are both technically excellent and have a really strong con concept at the core of it. And the, and, and the technique delivers on that, on that initial promise. So um, I would say work really hard to find an idea that you totally believe in and then start writing it. And when you've written the seventh draft, really ask yourself whether it's, 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 it's good enough to go out into the world, whether that's the one that you feel proudest of. And if, you, if there's any hesitation about that, you should move on to your next idea and put that one in your bottom drawer. And when you've got to the second or third or fourth or fifth, then, because, and the reason I'm saying this is it is so brutal as a writer coming, coming into the industry. Um, and, and you'll be coming onto a production where, uh, where, your, where your idea ultimately gets commissioned and you're actually producing it, you're going to be asked to do every script dozens and dozens of times and to redraft and to redraft. Many of the notes you won't like, you'll have to fight against and disagree with. And um, you might not like the people that you're working with. You might love a lot of them, but you, you'll face many challenges. And, and so the key has to be that you love the initial idea and that you feel it's the best, best possible idea. And that you'll, you'll, you feel confident enough that it's, um, that people will be making a mistake if they don't commission it. Hope that thank helps. Yeah, thank you. Um, good question here. Have you ever worked on a project, realized it's a disaster, you can't change it for whatever reason and in this situation what would you advise doing <laughs> um i can't tell if that sort of behind that question is a personal story from the from the questioner um but if there is then please write write in and say maybe give a bit more detail but for, yes um certainly there have been occasions when we have gone forward on a project and then thought this just isn't working I, I, but I would say that we have never got to that point in a show that has been green lit because the process is so painful that if, if you get any sense at an earlier point that it's not working out, then you tend to be able to ditch it at an earlier point than it actually going into production. If, if, if that makes sense, we've had shows which have been green lit and then canceled. And that is one of the most, um, yeah, that is a horrible, horrible experience. I feel like I'm painting a picture of an industry which is brutal and um, and um, not worth coming into. But I but the, the the sort of counterbalance to that is that the the sheer joy and magic of seeing an, an idea that you might be involved with come to fruition and then on a screen is it's um, I've I've been in the industry I suppose for twenty years now and you never lose the sense of just wonderment that you know, the, uh, uh, something appearing on a screen that has taken that amount of sort of wrangling and molding and also that maybe other people will enjoy it. I'd really, I couldn't, it's, it's an incredible career. I'd really recommend it. Thanks, Jamie. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to cherry pick some questions now. I'm just conscious of time. Um, a question here from Arthur. How do you think the newer subscription-based services such as Netflix and Prime Video have changed the industry or will change the industry? Hi, Arthur. Um, they have changed the industry um, sort of beyond recognition. One of the major reasons for that is that um, the, the streaming services that you're referring to, like Netflix and Apple and Amazon, have a slightly different way of commissioning, um, which is they tend to want you to arrive, when you're, when you're pitching them something, to hand over a script um, rather than pitching them an idea. They don't, they don't always take that approach, but they usually do. So you have to have at least one script prepared. You've had to put in the energy, found the writer, paid the writer, invested in the idea first, and then you hand over the script. That enables those, those broadcasters to make decisions at a much more advanced stage in the creative process than the other broadcasters can, which means that they can move much more quickly um, and, uh, and, and they, can, they can see much more clearly whether an idea is a... A full, at a more at a, at a better formed stage whether it's actually going to work or not it's a little similar to the sort of pilot pilot season approach in the states where broadcasters will only move forward with an idea when they've actually shot the first episode and then they've decided that it works 
So it's a different version of, of that where they demand the script um, first up. And that, that is quite significant. It means they've got, in the UK particularly, they've got quite a big market advantage on the linear broadcasters who are prepared to go through a much more elaborate and longer and, and agonizing script development process um, from the idea upwards. The other thing, the other thing that has really significantly changed in the industry as a result of those um, streaming services is that is just from a conceptual point of view. Um, if you're a writer, for example, 10 years ago and looking around in the UK at what you, at the broadcasters that you could pitch to, they're all quite defined. And BBC One, for example, would have been defined as focusing on the age group from 60 upwards. Channel Four would have been defined as trying to target an audience between 16 and 24 and certain kinds of ideas. Um, equally Sky and all the, the other broadcasters would have, would have had a similar sort of remit. What the streaming services have done, which is radical and subversive, is to say, we don't really care what the idea is, as long as it is very, very good, and we can direct it at some part of our service. They're agnostic about demographics, agnostic about uh, age groups. They just want, they can just focus on the good idea. Once they've got the good idea produced, then they can make it work on the service wherever it fits best. And that is, that's really radical because it means that you can pitch ideas which are totally off the wall. Um, and, and if you, if you um, or, or, or just incredibly expensive or left field um, or ambitious in a way that you can't do the other broadcasters. So if you look at some of the shows that have been on Netflix in the last five or six years, you can see things like the OA or Russian Doll uh, even sex education, which just wouldn't have been commissioned by linear broadcasters because the, I, the concepts themselves are, are, are um, a little much in some ways. The consequence of that, and I know we're running out of time, but just quickly, the consequence of that is that all of the other broadcasters have now said, we, we want to look at ideas which um, are really original, which are different from everything else that we do. And so there's quite a big influx of really original thinking in the industry which is yeah is only a good thing thank you jamie i'm going to ask one final question um what, uh, i'm actually going to ch change this question slightly what advice would you give to someone trying to get into the industry today if they were at radley and they wanted to get into the industry what advice would you give to them uh i would say yes it, again it depends on what the role is i so just to be general i would say that Think really deeply about what it is about the idea of TV or film that that attracts you. What what is it? Is it the the idea of producing something? Maybe it's you love design and you want to be a set designer or a costume designer. Maybe um, it's that you want to be a cameraman and you love the technical aspect of it. Um, the one thing I would say is the, the huge advantage that if you're a Radleyan um, listening that you have over many, many other people coming into the industry is you literally have a sand bit available to you. Um, and I can actually see Mr. Halsey uh, there. And I know Mr. Halsey is still running the video unit. And he, and he told me some of the cameras that he's got uh, available in, in the, the video unit. It, your, your ability to try out, experiment, um, to make mistakes, work out what aspect of that creative process interests you is, is I have to say, quite amazing. Um, and I would really encourage you to, to play around and experiment. And by doing that, you'll see which element of the industry appeals to you. And once you've done that, then it becomes a, a separate question. Maybe you would go to film school. Maybe you would, um, maybe like me, do English literature at university. Maybe you would... Um, Maybe you'd go off uh, and, and you'd do a politics degree and then you'd go and work for Unilever, but on the side, you'd start making short films and then you'd realise that that's what you actually wanted to do. Um, there's no one answer to that, but it's, uh, I, I would encourage you to try and experiment while you're, while you're at school. It's a huge opportunity. Thank you, Jamie. That was absolutely brilliant. A great insight into a career in TV production. And thanks so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us. We're incredibly grateful. Total pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Now, before we go, I'm going to tell you about the exciting career talks that we've got lined up for you next week. 
We've got, following on from Jamie's talk, on Monday, we'll look at the industry from a different angle. So we have Henry Hereford, actor, best known for his roles in Crossbones, alongside John Makiewicz and Claire Foy, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and True Blood. So he's going to talk to you about how important it is to extend your skill sets beyond acting to become a great actor. On Wednesday, Doug Carr, entrepreneur and CEO of handbag company Melly Mello, will talk to you about the highs and lows of his career and what qualities he thinks you need to make a success of your own business. And on Friday, we have Hannah Bauer, global leadership development lead at Vodafone, a graduate recruitment expert, and she's going to talk to you about the value of pursuing multiple careers in your lifetime. So I'd like to thank you all for coming, and I look forward to seeing you at a talk in the future. Thank you, and goodbye. And thanks, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Check our channels for the latest news and events from the Radley and Society.